are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate in London for episode 46 of Blockchain Insider. Simon's gone off frolicking with Antonio Banderas at the Consensus Conference, so I'm your host for today's show. Today we bring you Amber Balde's new venture, Nasdaq-powered crypto exchange DX is ready for launch, and Floyd Mayweather-endorsed ICO is indicted for fraud. I'm not alone, however. I'm joined in the office by Oscar Williams-Grutt. How are you doing today, Oscar? I'm very good. Good to be uh, reunited with you again. Yeah, yeah. It's the old, the old gang back together from Business Insider. So before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about our sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaboration effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology providers. It is ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with the platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on, Corda. Go to Corda.net to learn more. So on with the news. Today's first story comes from Coindesk. It's very exciting. Uh, Amber Balde, who used to run uh, the blockchain projects for JP Morgan, um, has announced her new startup. Um, it's a blockchain D app or DAP store. I'm sure I'm going to be told off how to pronounce that. But it was finally revealed at Consensus 2018 in New York this week. Clover is a decentralized application store that will host a selection of well-vetted applications alongside some in-house developer tooling designed to simplify application development for enterprises. So the team, uh, it's not just Amber Balde, she's um, also working with some other ex-JPM colleagues. The team intends to provide an initial development framework for enterprises looking to build on the technology, something that um, basically the idea is to make it easier for enterprises to get access to and to build applications using lots of different types of blockchain technology. One of the things that they're really focused on as well is being able to keep data private. So what Balde was kind of hinting at is that um, a lot of the time people end up putting all the data on blockchain and actually it doesn't all need to be there. You can kind of anonymize that data and still get some analytics out of it. So um, what do you think of this, Oscar? What, what are your initial thoughts on this announcement? Well, I think, I think the initial thing I thought when I was reading it is that... Uh it struck me that you know the initial promise of blockchain and all these types of technologies in financial institutions was, hey, we can cut out loads of middlemen and that's going to save us on cost and that'll be the main cost-saving driver. To me, this looks like you know it's it's a middleman. It's uh, somebody who sits between you and the applications and you know the the choice of phrase there of well vetted. It's just the Apple App Store. Apple is a centralized you know institution that controls who gets into its ecosystem and all that sort of stuff. And with that comes power, comes uh, money, all these sorts of things. So I think there's a a slight, potentially a slight uh, tension there. And I think that's generally something that you notice when large institutions, particularly the banks, are trying to harness this technology. You know, the the financial system in many ways is centralised and uh, these organisations have grown over you know decades to become centralized so when they look to adapt the technology they inevitably want some aspect of centralization because it's what they used to <laughs> it's what they used to and it is just um i mean i think as they as uh, amber balde said in the sort of interview it's it's too it's not really effective for banks to be trawling through all these sort of open source forums and networks just to try and find one potentially good application it's better to centralize that role and have 
a company do it for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting point. I wonder if we sort of got beyond the dream if you like or if it's or, or even if it's the idea of um yeah okay originally you know the blockchain on which bitcoin was built was supposed to be decentralized but maybe we've actually reached a point here where we can see some proper applications for maybe even some of the other platforms so i think you know as she says that it's going to be um people can be able to build an ethereum or quorum you know any of those other blockchain based technologies that are out there um i think the problem they're trying to solve um is that basically enterprises want to use this technology there are lots of there's lots of promise to it it's not just banks i think you know any of those enterprises but as you, you very you can very rightly say how the hell are they going to find the time to work through what's out there and and you know what's best suited to them so yeah i wonder maybe maybe if this is actually okay fine decentralization was the dream but we have to be realistic and actually there are so many more applications of this technology outside of that that we shouldn't shut them off mm. i think as well the point i was making initially i'm coming at that from a perspective of when you know when this when the banks first started looking at blockchain technology, a lot of the talk was around the uh, cost-saving aspect of it. It'll save us. You know, I think Santander famously had a report saying it'll save banks $20 billion a year in costs. Now, if it doesn't save costs, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it means expectations have to be adjusted because you can still accept that blockchain and blockchain technology is, the you know, it's the future, it's the way we're going. It allows things we can't even probably think about at the moment to you know products and services to evolve but maybe it's worth just saying hey maybe it's not gonna be much cheaper but it's exciting it's the next thing it's if we don't get on this bandwagon then we're going to be left behind Uh, so maybe maybe there's an aspect of adjusting expectations and perspectives with all this yeah i mean i think that leads us uh, quite nicely into our second story today which is also from coindesk Um, and this is actually an interview with jp morgan's uh, new dlt lady so the lady who replaced amber balde at jp morgan the lady's name is christine moy Um, she took over from amber balde as i said the interview was uh, her talking about jp morgan's blockchain work and um, she was quite keen to point out that you know while conversation thus far has centered on quorum which is the bank's um, ethereum-based open source project there's a lot more to their work than that so you know while quorum um, has a lot of interest in it apparently there are around 20 organizations looking to build on top of it right now uh, moy says there are other areas that she and the bank are looking exploring and particularly interoperability um so the quote from her which kind of ties nicely into what you were just saying oscar is that um, it doesn't make sense to design blockchains to reflect the siloed operating models existing today creating a fragmentation of small blockchain networks without figuring out a way to enable interoperability or connectivity is likely not the promised path to cost savings and operational efficiency that enterprise prices are looking for so um it's kind of she's kind of one step ahead well, one step ahead of everybody one would hope if she's running jp morgan's blockchain project but yeah i think i think it's interesting there to see that she's actually in some way you know reiterating the point that expectations need to be changed but also um it's not that jp morgan aren't a one-trick pony in this space i think mm. yeah i think inter- interoperability is key because otherwise you just end up replicating the complexity that already exists just on new systems but the the problem with uh, what, what she's saying is, I think it's essentially a a human problem, not a technological problem. It's very difficult to get everybody around a table to agree interoperability standards, to agree that they're going to work on shared services and products that that will eventually get you to that endpoint where 
you can plug all the banks together and create these whizzy new products. Yeah, so maybe the expectations that need to be shifted are not expectations about what blockchain technology can enable, but actually about what you want from a system. So you as a financial institution particularly have to change your outlook. So, you know, your expectations are not that you get to keep everything within a walled garden and then, you know, divide it further using silos. You have to change, you know, your your perspective and what you, you think your systems are going to look like. Mm. I think that's difficult as well because you can get everybody around a table, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to, you know, you'll get any progress or that they will all agree on the direction Anything. of travel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember I remember talking to um, somebody at one of these sort of blockchain alliances. I won't say which one, but uh, they said one of the banks who signed up, they got the impression that they didn't have any intention of doing anything. They just wanted to be around the table so that they could see what the competitors were doing. Yeah. Um, so from the outside, it might look like, hey, we've got great consensus here. Everybody's talking, everyone's chatting. But actually, they're all sort of spying on each other, you know, half glances being, what's the competitor doing? Um, and it's getting people to say, hey, put, you know, check your egos at the door. Let's do something for the greater good of the industry. That, that's the real challenge, I think. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much of this as well is uh, Moy realising she has very big boots to fill and knowing that Quorum will be forever be Amber Balde's baby and thinking, OK, well, this is great. I can continue running this project, but I need to fund something of my own as well. But what you just said there, again, links us nicely to the next story. You're, um, it's almost like you wrote the links. Okay. This story is, in fact, from Business Insider. Um, I know it well. <laughs> um, HSBC is shaking up a centuries-old industry using blockchain. So HSBC said on Monday uh, it's made what it claims is the world's first commercial trade finance transaction using blockchain. Um, This particular transaction took 24 hours rather than the normal 5 to 10 days. Um, The transaction was um, in uh, an exchange for a shipment of soybeans shipped between Argentina and Malaysia. Um, HSBC handled the deal for US food and agricultural group Cargill. Uh, They're working alongside um, ING Bank and the blockchain technology uh, facilitating the transaction was developed by R3. Basically, the idea here is that instead of so, so trade finance usually involves lots and lots of bits of paper that everybody has to sign and agree, and then it's passed on to the next person. If you're using a blockchain platform, everybody can see the documents at the same time and can see they've been stamped at the same time, and it's a, it's a much much quicker process. I mean, for me, trade the trade finance market is a really interesting one. It's definitely ripe for disruption, and it's also one where blockchain could make a huge difference. But you know, as you were saying, Oscar, even HSBC points out the next step is trying to get people to play and it sounds like you're slightly skeptical that they will join in with this with you know on somebody else's platform well i well i suppose i am a little bit skeptical of that i mean i do think you know eventually this is the way everything's going to move uh but these types of announcements i mean when i saw this press release um i was like hang on a minute haven't i already written this story and i looked back and there was a a story i'd written in january with ing saying they'd done the world's first uh, cross-border commodities trade which again involved soybeans um, <laughs> who knew they were so yeah so involved. I think I think there's many ways of sort of phrasing it so it's the world's first and all this sort of thing and ultimately all these deals are they'll be you know they're, they're essentially they're real world pilots but they're still just pilots they'll I'm sure the amount of paperwork and meetings involved to get everyone to agree <laughs> to do this experiment would mean that while it took 24 hours for the actual transaction to take place, if you looked at it across the whole life cycle, it's probably months. and Probably you know. killed forests. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But, um, yeah, I think, as you say, it's, it's got clear applications in 
this particular area of finance. And it seems obvious that to, to try and apply it to this area, and HSBC seems to be one of the banks who are making the biggest strides in this area. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's interesting for me about you talking about trade finance is that when you're talking about partners and involved in that network, it's not just other financial institutions. It's got to be, you know, the ports and customs operations. It's got to be the shipping companies. It's got to be, you know, the people who own the soybeans. On the one hand, HSBC almost has a bit of a captive market there because if these guys are their customers, then it's going to be much, much easier to sell them into using this solution. You know, hey, guys, we're going to save you days and, you know, it's going to be much easier to do all this shipping. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not going to work unless all the other banks are involved because obviously HSBC is not always just going to be paying itself, yeah. the, you know, the final settlement. I, I don't know. I'm quite, I'm cautiously optimistic that trade finance is going to make some big, big strides, um, if only because it's like 300 years old, the current process, and it's got to do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it's one of those areas where there's clear complexity that doesn't, you know, the, the, the reason for the complexity, it's the same with... Um, international payments the reason for the complexity is borders and systems that aren't it goes back to the interoperability point if you can create some sort of universal standard that everything plugs together that's probably going to be the ideal solution because then you don't necessarily need everybody on the same platform you just say come up with some sort of blockchain platform within you know your company or something and then we can all Mind you, if we can't do that with electrical sockets and plugs around the world, God, God knows how we'll do a blockchain. Um, but I think an interesting one to keep an eye on. Uh, so our next story today comes from Coindesk again. Uh, the story is that Deloitte veterans are launching a tokenized blockchain for supply chain. Um, the new project is called Citizens Reserve, which makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. I don't know if anybody else uh, is seeking to launch a permission blockchain protocol called Zerve. I think that's right, that they hope will become an operating system for supply chain. So former Deloitte global blockchain leader Eric Piscini, again, I hope that's right, said we're building a supply chain middleware that sits on top of the blockchain. No indication as to which <laughs> blockchain and gives you all the fundamental pieces of the supply chain. The, the Zerve... <laughs> network, I'm sorry, I can't say it without laughing, um, will seek to uh, build on top of existing blockchains like Quorum and Ethereum to create a technology that can match orders, track provenance on a supply chain that operates on a consortium model. Key to this will be what the company calls its ability to embrace blockchain, there's a lot of quotes here, by using the technology to offer monetary incentives. So basically, we're going to do an ICO. In, interesting that supply chain has come up again. I'm, I'm slightly tangled in this story, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. I kind of get the different bits about what they want to do, but there's so many caveats. It's very hard to sort of pinpoint the actual problem they're solving. Mm, I couldn't work out who... So who's getting the financial incentives? Well, the idea is, I think, that the company will acquire real-world assets. So people will... Uh, there's a second point to this, which kind of makes me even more nervous about this, but... Um, the, they take so they'll raise some money they will t- peg a token to it and then when people use that token there's I think financial incentives attached to that to using the token so imagine maybe a discounted price so if you use Zerve rather than Fiat the product is cheaper but the thing that really really makes me nervous is the first market they're targeting is the international defense industry yeah. apparently right now when you trade ammunition and weapons it's done over the phone uh, there's no software involved so they want to solve that problem I'm not. I'm not sure I want them to solve that problem. Well, I feel like there's probably a, a, a reason why it's all done over the phone, which is one. I don't think a lot of these people want an extensive paper trail. That you know, certainly could not an be, immutable one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two. Um, a lot of these, you know, the def- defense in, industry is an interesting one because it's it's one where ninety nine percent of uh, governments around the world 
are not their number one priority is not efficiency it's you know deadly capacity <laughs> they want the most you know powerful weapons and the most yeah uh, I, b- I believe you but it just it just adds to my discomfort with this idea yeah. but so I, I think if you know it's it's not necessarily a problem if it takes a little it's a little more costly or if it's a little uh, slower to yeah. get there nuclear warheads or whatever i think i mean i think the supply chain point is a valid one i think the rest of it we need um a little more guidance to untangle um if anybody has any clearer idea of what's going on here then please do let us know um i'm going to move us on from that uh to the next story which is from block one the story is that commonwealth bank cfo rob this is a brilliant name jay Dayson will lead block one as group president and chief operating officer going forward so block one or block dot one is the publisher of the IOCIO blockchain software and seller of the EOS token. Um, they've named this guy as their new group president and chief operating officer. He's responsible for basically scaling the group's global operations. He has a lot of experience in scaling group operations, but with very, very large financial organizations, most recently Commonwealth Bank. So interesting move on his part it was really interesting as well he announced his resignation and then 10 minutes later so he basically he handed in his resignation to commonwealth bank and then 10 minutes later like they announced this so i would say commonwealth bank probably didn't know it was coming maybe they no 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 it's a really interesting move i think um on his part yeah i mean it's it seems like there's seen i mean obviously uh at the start when we were talking about clover you know there's a lot of uh people leaving mainstream financial institutions to uh, join startups. I mean, Simon Taylor, <laughs> famous example. But uh, it seems to be if somebody gets a taste of the blockchain, they, they just want to go out into the wild and do these sort of more radical experiments rather than yeah. perhaps a more conservative environment of a bank. I think it's kind of every FI's biggest fear, right? You have these these people who've been with you for, you know, six, ten years, they're senior leadership, people look up to them, and then not only do they jump ship, but it just sort of exacerbates that talent problem. So they these companies are trying to attract their own innovation, their own blockchain talent. And if the people they've already got keep leaving, they have to replace them, and then additionally, you know, find new talent to help with the innovation projects. I mean, especially with staff this senior, uh, that's yeah. kind of like an ouch moment. Yeah, this is a quite unusual in, in that it is a sort of uh, the CFO, which is unusually high up the yeah. chain. Well, best of luck to him. Um, our next story this afternoon is from Finance Magnates. Uh, it's that a NASDAQ-powered crypto exchange, DX, is set to launch next month. So DX.exchange uh, is the first crypto exchange powered by NASDAQ. The uh, CEO of this company, a, a gentleman called Daniel Skoronsky, oh goodness, I'm getting all the fun names today, said that the advantage of this corporation is threefold, the brand name, the technology, and the regulations. So the technology one, uh, the brand name is kind of obvious. Uh, the technology will rely on NASDAQ's infrastructure, so use things like its matching engine, which will help with the, with the trading part, obviously. Um, over 70 exchanges around the world use that particular piece of software. And then working with NASDAQ means that it has to have, it has to be regulated because they can't work with NASDAQ. Otherwise, uh, interestingly, they have, this exchange has an Estonian license uh, and another from Cyprus. So for most European clients, it can offer you crypto trading options. So buying and selling in fiat, token to token purchases, as well as, uh, and also they're also licensed to hold customer funds and deposits. But what that does mean is that US clients can't, can't use it at launch, although the company said they're working on that. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting move to you to combine you know Nasdaq's technology with this idea of an exchange. I, sp- I suppose it's not unexpected. 
that somebody would do it this way? No, I mean, I think one of the big themes of the last sort of six months has been uh, the push from market infrastructure companies into the sort of crypto and blockchain space. Um, I mean, obviously, we had CME and uh, CBOE both launch Bitcoin futures. CME Group this this week just launched a sort of Ethereum, two Ethereum price indexes, in fact. And I think for them, you know, for all these types of companies, it's great because they're effectively selling shovels in a gold rush. You know, yeah. they don't carry a lot of the risk. If I the, mean, NASDAQ if, will provide technology to anybody who wants to pay for it. Yeah, so if you want to exactly. use their matching engine and you're prepared to pay, then I imagine they're like, okay, if you've got pieces of paper, these guys okay. say they have, they're like, okay, go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think it's a... It's a an obvious an obvious move from from these types of companies and also just the i think it's difficult to see headlines such as you know coinbase having 1 billion dollars revenue last year and not think why aren't we getting a slice of that yeah. pie you know it, it really hammers home how big this market is how big the opportunity is and uh, i think any reservations that anyone had they check it at the door when they're seeing that that level yeah. of uh, revenue I mean, although I suppose arguably we should point out that NASDAQ, the technology company, and NASDAQ, the exchanges, are, are two arms of the same thing, as it were. So it's not like NASDAQ's launched an exchange. It's that the technology comp- the technology that they built to launch their exchange is now underpinning something else. But if I were NASDAQ, this seems like a great way to see how it could work. Yeah. There's no reason. That, I mean, I think we had a story a few weeks ago where the, they were saying, yeah, well, actually, if we could find a way to do it, there's no, we wouldn't say no to it. Yeah, yeah. And I think NASDAQ have also said publicly that they're working on bitcoin futures as well so the the momentum seems to be there yeah i I would be very surprised if we don't see more more from that i know nasdaq seem to be one of the most forward-thinking um companies in that on the exchange side in that Mm. space so our next story is from coindesk um this is a brilliant one the founders of an ico endorsed by floyd mayweather have been indicted for fraud so the three co-founders of cryptocurrency firm centratech have all been indicted by a grand jury, um, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York announced on Monday. Centra reportedly offered cryptocurrency-related financial products, and its founders allegedly created a scheme to induce victims to invest millions of dollars worth of digital funds for the purpose of unregistered securities, according to the uh, release from the the Southern District of New York. Um, apparently, these founders allegedly withheld important information uh, or otherwise misle- misled the investors, including claims about ties to a payment company. So the company's taken sale was both endorsed by heavyweight boxer Floyd Mayweather. Um, it claimed to have partnerships with Visa and MasterCard. Um, and the SEC has come back and said, well, all of that's nonsense, apart from the, the Floyd Mayweather <laughs> endorsement. Um, to me, this is a really interesting... It just it goes back to that point of, well... There's a difference between a, a fraudulent sort of company and a company that may lose your money, but this is this is like whack a mole for the regulators trying to put their put these things down, especially when celebrities keep going. Oh yeah, that's a great idea. I'll tweet about it. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting one. Uh, the, I think I think it's actually there's actually probably quite a fine line between uh, what is a fraudulent operation and what is you know just mismanaged or they've just lost your money they tried their hardest i think we'll probably see a lot more legal cases based around people projects that fail or uh, you know have been accused of mismanagement i mean there's already one for um i've forgotten the name what's that one in uh, switzerland oh tezos tezos or yes. t2 or whatever they yeah, call it now yeah. yeah so i think they're I think their investors are suing them or the, the foundation. It's an awful lot of lawsuits yeah. last time I looked. So, yeah, lots flying around there. But I think that will probably become more common. Um, and what's interesting about this 
instance is, um, well, actually, with both Tezos and Centra, there's a clear link, I, th- I, I would argue, between press coverage of these companies and the, uh, the actual action against them because Centra were the subject of a famous New York Times article that basically highlighted how these people were, you know, high-living youngsters who have been arrested in the past mm-hmm. and then, you know, subsequently this, this leads to this legal action. And Tezos was also investigated by Reuters. Again, the legal action followed that. And again, another interesting point about this, I think, is that this is, I think it's important to draw a distinction between the financial regulators and actual legal authorities. So this is the US Southern District of New York, which is, they are actual law enforcement you know, or, yeah the, you know, the SEC is involved the SEC yeah. has pushed the case to them I, I, I agree with your point I think it's 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 difficult to, to see where where the line is mm. for me the interesting thing is that perhaps as a secondary business model so you know you're talking about selling shovels in a gold rush well there was a really interesting company I was reading about the other day called Metacert which is basically trying to set itself up as you know, okay, we can't protect you from all the fraudsters out there, but we can have a peer-to-peer system which monitors which ICOs people have found to be legit. I think the, I mean, I think the point that they're trying to make is that okay, we can't get rid of everybody, but if we have a, a peer monitoring system, it might be easier for people to know which investments are not necessarily safe to put their money in because they're investments, but which are not uh, guys who are going to take all your money and, and go and buy a yacht and party in the Caribbean or whatever it is these guys are accused of having done. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's probably, in some ways, analogous to the junk bond boom, you know, which sort of ha- claimed a lot of uh, high-profile scalps, famously Mike Milken, who was the guy credited with pioneering the idea of junk bonds. But they're still alive and well today, and uh, an ecosystem has grown up around junk bonds, which allows people to assess them, say, you know, okay, I've, I can quantify my risk here. Yeah. I'm not going in blind. Um. Well, I mean, what's your thought on celebrity endorsements here? Because that's a subject that it doesn't seem to... I mean, I don't ever see... Cele- I mean, I see celebrity endorsements for shoes and handbags, but I don't see celebrity endorsements for a Halifax credit card, unless you count Top Cat as a, <laughs> as a celebrity endorsement. Oh, yeah, you get, you get Lewis <laughs> Hamilton doing the one, two, three account. Oh, I suppose, yes, I suppose he does. Um, I think it's... The the reason you don't you typically don't get celebrity endorsements for financial products is because their fees are too high, probably. But I <laughs> yeah, think, Lewis Hamilton, I imagine, charged out there quite a lot of money. Yeah, for those exactly. Ads. But I think it's a combination of the fact that a there is a very different price point for getting a tweet and getting a full TV ad. It was lesser John McAfee. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and and b the um, the fact that these early stage businesses have the potential to raise so much money. So, uh, yeah, I, I suppose it's an interesting thing for me as well as that whether celebrities let their names be attached to things because I'm thinking particularly about people like Ashton Kutcher who has made some very savvy tech investments but his names only come out at kind of a later date. He didn't go out there and promote them. He looked at businesses and went, okay, that's quite, as far as I know, like that's that's a good investment to put some money in there and then when, you know, filings were made, everyone was like, oh, well, that's the Ashton Kutcher. I don't know. I just, I find it slightly unsavoury but then maybe I'm very old-fashioned. No, I, I think, I mean, well, it, it's... I think it's unsavoury because of the complexity involved in most of these products. So it seems quite disingenuous. If yes, you say, that's I mean, true. the famous example is Harry Redknapp tweeted for 
Um, the football manager. Yeah, yeah. yeah I knew yeah. a footballer. I'm looking at my producer. <laughs> I knew a footballer. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember what specific ICO it was, but he tweeted about an ICO being like, you know, well up for this, get in, can't wait, or something like that. I mean, there's no way he had read or understood what he yeah. was tweeting about. But I suppose there's a difference between opening a current account and putting money into an investment. They are very different sorts of products. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, let's, let's, let's leave that one there um, and move on to our final story today, which is from Coindesk. Uh, a, flor- a Florida tax collector will now start accepting Bitcoin, oh, and Bitcoin cash, apparently. So a Florida county tax collector has passed partnered with Bitcoin payments processor BitPay to accept cryptocurrency for a variety of services. Uh, Seminole County tax collector Joel Greenberg said in a statement on Monday that his office will take Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash for payments associated with driver licenses and ID cards, automobile tags and titles and property tax. Greenberg said in the statement, the aim of my tenure in office is to make our customer experience faster, smarter and more efficient and to bring government services from the 18th century into the 21st century. Um, And one way is the addition of cryptocurrency to our payment options. I rather think he could have done some other things first, like yeah, credit card payments. I what, the, <laughs> what the other options were on the table? I mean, they're not. The, it's not the first time we've heard about this because um, Zug, oh, I never get that right. Zug in Switzerland, yeah. uh, apparently, well, they were the first, the first region, if you like. They took tax payments in Bitcoin quite famously uh, as part of an incentive to get you know the kind of company to move to the area. I just this this doesn't feel like this feels like a publicity stunt to me. Yeah, I think I, I just find it. A little strange, really. I mean, my initial, my immediate thought when I read this was, I hope they've got a good sort of treasury management policy because <laughs> have they thought about the fluctuations in value of Bitcoin, how they're going to store it, how they're going to stop it being hacked? You know, it, it seems a. Uh, I'd like to inquire more about how exactly they're going to handle all this Bitcoin tax. But then again, that's me assuming they will get any, and perhaps they are just doing it as a publicity stunt, and they're thinking that the amounts we'll get will be trifling so there's no point even thinking about it yeah i mean i don't even know what the fees would be for a driver license like it feels like a a new driver's license in the uk is not all that much money so it feels like you'd get like 0.20 property tax though oh that's true that's true be an interesting one i i it's kind of this juxtaposition in my mind between all those regulators and legislators who are going you know you can't do this and we're cracking down on it and trying to you know make a framework that's easy for you to operate in and then you've got you know county tax collectors over on the other hand going yeah well we'll take it yeah yeah (laughs) guys get your house in order uh, so there were a few stories you didn't have time to cover today. So the first story that we didn't have time to cover this week is Goldman Sachs granted Settlecoin cryptocurrency patent. The second is that the Bank of Canada and TMX, which is the um, exchange provider out there, say that blockchain is feasible for security settlement. That's a long way, big difference between feasible and uh, actually happening. But there we go. BMW is test driving blockchain for car mileage tracking and Kodak coin fundraising to begin later this month. I cannot wait for that one. And now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. So this week's tweet comes from Alan Silbert, whose tweet is very simple. It's bankers against Bitcoin protesting outside consensus. Full stop. Lol. <laughs> so I don't know this bankers against Bitcoin group or this, this website, which um, is apparently what it links to. I, I feel like there may be some satire involved here. Yeah, apparently, um, apparently it was a uh, a completely fake protest, and also there there were lots of Lamborghinis parked outside uh, consensus that were all apparently rented as well. It's uh, so they're trying to make a joke about the fact they have a terrible reputation for being 
I don't know what it is, but it, I think it all points to the fact that a lot of the stuff in the uh, ICO world is all front, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 this consensus conference, uh, a lot of the stories we brought you today have, have been product releases that have come out of the conference or stories that have come out of the conference. Um, it has, it, it's been astounding the popularity of the conference. There were huge, huge problems with registration. They had something like 9,000 people register and they were only prepared for 3,000 to turn up. They had people queuing for three hours down the street to get in. It, it's part of New York's uh, New York City's Blockchain Week, which is supposed to bring lots and lots of money into the into the city, uh, into the state, I imagine. Um, but it's, it's one that I think is very hard for people who are outside of that world to get their heads around. Yeah, I can imagine. I, they probably think it's uh, akin to the sort of Beanie Baby craze or something. Yeah. Where all these people queuing up to talk about imaginary coins and all that sort of stuff. I can just it's imagine, the future. Yeah, I could just imagine a load of people, you know, walking down the street and say, "What are you here for, young man? The blockchain conference." Um, so we will we will leave it there today. Uh, but before we go, our very own Simon Taylor was interviewed by Pete Rizzo at Consensus. So let's hear what he has to say. My next guest, Simon Taylor. Uh, co-founder 11FS, a UK challenger consultancy focused on fintech and the host of the Fintech Insider podcast, sure right there, and Blockchain Insider, another podcast focused specifically on blockchain. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thanks for having me, Pete. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. So let's talk about the conference. This is the topic of conversation here. Uh, I believe you were saying talking about just how many people are here and the vibe of the conference. You said multiple Lambo sightings. Multiple Lambo sightings. It was Eric from Masari. Uh, okay. Take a photo outside the Hilton where we're at today. There were four Lambos parked one behind the other. Sign of the times. It's a right. sign of the mood, I guess. Like crypto prices may have been down in the last three months, but Lambos are an asset that you can keep, right? Maybe they're right. depreciating, but they still look. <laughs> we're setting a high bar there, though. It seems like now we just have to keep going with the Lambos, and everybody has to keep the payments up throughout the rest. Yeah, of the no. I wonder how they're going to make their payments, their down payments on these <laughs> things. But uh, I wonder also if the Lambo allowed them to skip the lines because the lines to get lines in are, here yeah. have been unbelievable. I remember. I remember I was here in 2014, and uh, <laughs> like that was a different conference uh, back then. There was you were Not down an escalator. There was like yeah. five people in a sheet. Right. It was uh, yeah. it was kind of interesting. So tell me about the crowd, though. So you've been out there. I actually have been sort of here, CoinDesk Live thing uh, the whole time. Uh, what kind of people are you seeing? Are these people new to blockchain? Are these old hands? Yeah. Like, so w- one thing you can guarantee, I, I can see William Moyagar walking past. Right. I just caught up with Laura Shin, Avery. So there's a whole bunch of like the the people that you would want to meet, everybody that you'd expect at one of the major conferences uh, that you're bumping into but a whole bunch of faces I've never seen before huh. and if you look at the badges it's enterprise it's governments and it's global uh, what really surprised me is that more than 50% of the people here are from around the world I was like this is a real sign of the times that it's not just a west coast thing like tech used to be or it's not just a China thing this right. is actually truly global and everybody's kind of come into New York and had to wait in line to get into consensus this year I've also seemed to notice there's a bit more emphasis this year on cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, consensus has historically been sort of a blockchain suit and tie crowd. From my brief glimpse out there, it doesn't seem like that's the case this year. Uh, and that's my big observation of 2018 is uh, uh, as we've seen enterprise kind of come back as being like, okay, maybe it's not all BS. We've also seen the establishment kind of go, hey, this crypto asset space, maybe maybe it could be legitimized. Um, there was a point made, I think, in one of the opening keynotes from, uh, the, uh, from one of the Coindesk researchers that said, look, 
the Adam Smith thing of self-interest is really coming into crypto. Sit As the hedge funds have come in crypto, the capitalists have realized, actually, there is something to this stuff. We could, we could work with it. It might not just be, hey, let's kill this evil internet money that needs right. to go away. There's something here that might make sense for enterprise. Well, so, of course, you're based in uh, London these That's days, right. and, you know, you're in that enterprise sort of old guard environment. Um, you know, what's the temperature there? Are you noticing, I, even I ran into uh, John Welpert uh, from IBM, now yep. with Consensus, once told me that IBM would never do coins. IBM is Working with Stella and very friendly to that these days. Um, is it just a people warming up to what has already been around or like what, what, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's warming up to what's been around and I think it's seeing the commercial opportunity in their everyday business, especially in financial services, right? Because in financial services it was gonna be, all right, we'll do this slow, gradual infrastructure right. upgrade where over twenty years we might migrate from this. It's thing hard to, to this. believe that that was really sexy at one point. Hey, let's face it, the back end <laughs> is not as sexy as you want it to be in, yeah. in financial services. That was a big headline grabber, you know, a couple of years back, you know, financial infrastructure redone on blockchain, it seems like that's really gone away. But I think it's kind of, there's a couple of themes I'm seeing. The first theme is like, for a long time, the clients of the major financial institutions have been saying, give me access to this asset class. Um, they're not quite there yet, they're getting time, into prop like, trading a little bit. And I, but I'm seeing these small sort of shoots of this kind of, that mood happening where the bigger banks are starting to think, well, how do we do prop trading? Some of them are doing it in small ways. How so do we prop trading, what do you mean when you're talking about prop trading? Just uh, proprietary trading, opening okay. their own desk. Oh, so, okay. so you mean like the Goldman Sachs that refer to open the desk? So you think this is, so this is a big signal, you're saying? Yeah, I think that's a real signal of intent that they're looking at it, and you've got the next tier kind of looking at that as well. You've got the financial market infrastructures also looking at how do they start to tokenize securities, which is kind of like that uh, token offering has kind of become the regulated private security. So you've got your harbors and your templums kind of playing in that new infrastructure space, that new asset class space. So your traditional Bitcoins, your Ethereums, your new security tokens, and then the enterprise infrastructure stuff suddenly looks at that and kind of goes, well, these three things kind of fit together. And I'm seeing the three of those almost kind of huh. come together at the moment. Well, so let's talk about, uh, you know, speaking of Twitter and social media, goal here, obviously, engage your audience, hashtag Coindesk Live. There was a recent uh, tweet that started making rounds about a certain company called Binance. They're a cryptocurrency to cryptocurrency only exchange, that their revenue is now greater than some regulated financial institutions, Deutsche Bank. What do you buy of this comparison? Is this just Twitter nonsense? Or is well, it's an unfair comparison, right? Um, you, you can make a lot of revenue if you don't have uh, the traditional cost base, which a brand new business doesn't have the traditional cost base, right? right. I mean, with but, finance, it's obviously a small group of early people. And, and it's all tech-based. Right. Great. So that's, that's fine. You started a new business. You have a better cost-income ratio. FinTech's been doing that for a while. Right. What I think... Oh, the other side of that is they're also doing a lot of reg arbitrage. They're going to where the regulation's easiest. They're trying to avoid it. <laughs> right, and, and for the sins, like Deutsche Bank and the big banks don't have that option, right? They have to get regulated, and the way they do it is very manual and very costly. And so to me, hey, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I think the answer's somewhere in the middle of these two, mm. and I'd love to see what happens if Deutsche Bank learned from Binance, and Binance were to come more towards the light a little bit. I do think um, that the CEO there has been almost making a play of being anti-jurisdiction and right. anti-regulation. 
which I don't think is a sign of maturity, and I'd like to see different signals personally. If my uh, pension and my parents' pension was ever going to go into the crypto asset community, I'd want the crypto asset community to be making different noises personally. Right. So you still think that this, uh, these are signs that this market is just less mature, even though there's interest. So I guess uh, let's talk a little bit about, you said the regulated, securitized tokens, uh, securitized crypto assets. Maybe tell a little people about this space. What are you seeing as the opportunities there? Because it seems like crypto assets exist. There's now a new thing called security tokens. What's that about? Yeah, so security tokens has become a bit of a catch-all bucket, right? So traditionally, we've had listed market instruments. When I wanted to uh, issue debt, so I wanted to raise money to fund my company, or if I wanted to issue shares, I wanted to raise money, but now you have a percentage of any future profit, I had to do so through a very paper process. It's manual, it sucks, or even going to IPO. Like, this is really, really costly. It's really, really painful, but it's a well-trodden path that has a lot of known risks in it. So the idea of uh, kind of security, uh, turning that into tokens is one, it gives me efficiency. Two, it can be traded in lots of different ways. So I take all of that paper process that had all of these different actors in it and I turn it into a token and potentially I streamline that process significantly, which is interesting to whoever you are. So that's part number one is taking all the stuff I used to do in financial markets and putting a token on it. The new thing as well is there's all of these alternative asset classes. So outside of shares and debt and, and uh, derivatives, you have the alternative asset classes. So this is your real estate, this is uh, loan origination, art, wine, all that kind of stuff. Well, that stuff sucks because, well, it's an amazing investment. Wine for sucks. Is that your, Wine's that's lovely, your <laughs> but it sucks uh, from a middle and back office cost processing right. standpoint because it's just really hard to deal with. Yeah. I've got to find the piece of paper that sits in a depository somewhere yeah. and that somebody else, like, it's so manual it's unbelievable. So to have, again have a token giving that transparency is really exciting to uh, traditional financial institutions as well as investors. And, and that's what the likes of Harbor and Templum are also looking at. So stuff we used to do in financial markets, the alternative asset classes, and then the third one, everything comes in threes with me, is like this new, uh, you know, like your non-fungible tokens or your digital asset uh, right. classes. So the this is IP, like you know, things like music, your crypto kitty, your art, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's going to be like that whole space, again, from what we used to do to uh, the kind of alternative asset classes to the digital stuff. It's going to be really interesting to see where the tide swings and there's opportunity across all of that spectrum. I guess last question. Uh, so once again, taking questions at Coindesk Live. We'll be here all day. Uh, what kind of panels are you looking at uh, you know, coming up? Uh, what do you think of the interesting topics that you're looking at here today? Oh, well, first of all, um, fellow Daywalker, i got to know what Amber Balde is up to. Really excited right. to see what Big she's doing. Big announcement at 4 o'clock today for all those tuning in. K uh, keep an eye on that. There's um, a panel on jurisdictions uh -huh. um, and how do we harmonize the global jurisdictions. And, you know, like uh, Asia has a very different view to the U.S. It has a different view to Europe. But actually, crypto assets are global. So what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean for the future of data privacy? Um, everything that happened with Facebook recently. Uh, so there's a session, I think, around the same time. So I don't know how I'm going to be in two places at once. you got to clone yourself, I guess. I think that, or I'm going to watch the live stream. <laughs> or fork yourself, yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, Simon Taylor, for, uh, and our next guest will be coming soon. Uh, hashtag Coindesk Live and Facebook.com slash Coindesk. Simon, thanks for having thanks me, my friend. On. Good to see you. Yes. Just before we go, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how we commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. 
Oscar, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Do you perhaps have a website or a Twitter handle you'd like people to hear yes. about? Yes, I have both. Uh, so all my stories published on businessinsider.com and I would point you towards my recent interview with uh, Garrick Heelman, who is the new head of research at Blockchain. Um, I had an exclusive interview with him on Wednesday. Um, and you can follow all my stuff on Twitter at Oscar W. Groot, which is spelled G-R-U-T. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, I also have to thank the amazing production team here at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, and Michael Bailey, our editor, and our assistant producer, Petra Parisha. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. And spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.